The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. Life entering into death itself was redemptive. For Jesus as life to die, that light couldn't be snuffed out. That light was entering into death. It was entering into hell. And so that is relevant for our lives today as well, that in the ways that we wander in death, life is already present. The life that is God is present in our midst. Death loses its sting because even death, life now resides. Byron, please tell me about uh, me being Orthodox for a change. <laughs> so, so for context, I'm uh, bi-ecclesial, Eastern Orthodox and Presbyterian. And as you were talking, it just reminded me of the Pascha hymn, the Easter Resurrection hymn uh, that goes, I, I know it better in Greek, but in English it's, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. And upon those in the tombs bestowing life. And the idea of trampling down death by death. I mean, in the, in the reformed setting, right, it, it reminds me of Karl Barth's uh, Aufhebung, the negation to the negation. You know, we, we sin and we say no to God. And to that, God has to respond a no, creating effectively a double negative that restores the positive <laughs> relationship. Uh, and trust me, I hate math, but I can deal with double negatives. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, this this text in particular is used to offer so many theories of atonement, right? But the early church had a number of theories of atonement, but the one that they all kind of merged into is the idea of Christus Victor, right? That God ultimately wins against sin and death, right? That God completely eradicates it in the person of Jesus, that, that it doesn't require this sacrifice. It instead requires, it requires the presence of love. It requires the presence of love to be able to establish itself and, and to win over the powers of sin and death. But Anselm comes up as a reaction to Christianity becoming the model of empire, right? Christus Victor begins to wane out as the empire begins to claim Christianity and the Roman Empire, when it claims Christianity, has to turn Christianity into a tool of its own arsenal. Um, we're recording this on July 4th, and I often say to people, no, I don't celebrate the 4th of July, I'm a Christian, because I don't worship the state, right? And the state, when the state gets its hands on my religion, it commodifies it. It causes it to be a system of punishment and oppression. And so this concept of Christ winning the victory overall uh, over sin and death, well, Christ can't win the victory over sin and death and some people still be stuck in it, right? Forever, mm. forever and ever, amen, right? If there are people still in hell at the end of time, it means that God didn't win, right? That, that God won, you know, 97 to three, but God didn't win overall, right? <laughs> but that is not what the Bible teaches. It says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all shall receive eternal life, right? And so this, this concept that God wouldn't win overall 
is antithetical to a Christus Victor atonement theory. And so instead, we had to come up with something else that allowed some people to be left on the outside. And substitutionary theories of atonement, where Christ takes the place of our sacrifice, allows for Christ to only have victory over some of these things, but it also makes God into a monster that requires sacrifice, that has an insatiable desire for sacrifice, that is completely at odds with all that the prophets have to teach us, which is why the prophets are anti-empire in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and Micah, to what you're saying, this is why it's so important that we have definitions that we can share about what sin is, about what death is. I think the legal image became a really popular one, understanding sin as breaking God's law mm-hmm. and that it all takes place within God's courtroom, the judgment. So of course there has to be <laughs> judgment that puts some people guilty, right? You know, and so then the guilt has to fall on someone. And if it's not us, it's Jesus, you know. So this image has become really um I would say it's it's deeply tied to the substitutionary atonement because someone needs to take the fall. Someone needs to take the fall for the crime is the idea. Another image that I think is much more helpful, and I would say intuitive as well, that is very biblical, is the idea of relational separation. That there is a relationship that has been ruptured. There is breakage, there is distrust, and it needs reconciliation. It needs to be reconciled so that there can be wholeness and unity. And I think to what L was saying, which was such an important point that, you know, we're not talking about death as this thing that is being like conquered. And again, in this militaristic sense that it it is this thing that we can point to to be destroyed, but it is our own sense of being lost, you know? Mm -hmm. And and so when we fear death, we're missing the whole point of our deep connection to God and that we've never actually been separated. And that even that idea of separation is itself an illusion. And the illusion is what has power over us. Mm -hmm. And so the reconciliation of God is to say, God entered into our illusion. God became human. God mm. came in, experienced the same sense of us that, uh, you know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God experienced all of that so that we would know that all of this, none of it can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. None of it. Yep. I think it's so strange the way we like have been using terminology like winning and losing when it's winning and losing what? Like it's it's about a a hard break, a separation that happened with Adam and Eve, with Cain and Abel, continuing on and on where we're separated through our own choices. So what what is there to win when it's yeah, I, I, I just I think that language is really weird when it's it's about repairing relationship rather than winning souls for God and that way we're all like like what 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 is that? Like this is about your and maybe maybe it's my Protestant influences, but this is about your unique individual relationship and closeness with your creator. And the further you are from that, the more hell you experience, the more trouble, the more fear. And when you use what Jesus has taught, because that that's how we conquer our own fears. When you take that, you find that closeness to God. And, you know, you haven't won anything, but you've become whole. I think one of the things that I'm hearing from all of this discussion, you know, someone will say something and I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. And then they'll continue the next sentence and I'm like, oh, dear, that's like problematic. And then they'll continue the next <laughs> sentence. It's like, but this is so amazing. And and I think one thing that I need to remind myself of is that this is a gross whack story. Like not just the Abraham Isaac story, but the, the whole Jesus, like, 
for some reason, when God designed the world, knowing all of this stuff, God decided that somehow, you know, no greater love hath anyone than this than to lay down their life for one's friend. Like, I, I really want to resist the urge to like kumbaya, sugarcoat, everything is easy, just give Jesus a hug idea. That there's real death here, and it's not just the death of our enemies, it's our death, it's God's death, it's there's a lot of death and blood. And there's some yuckiness that I I it's tempting to call accommodations too. I don't know. I I want to resist trying to like solve this conundrum. <laughs> I, I I'm I'm thinking that just because. Uh, one of my professors, uh, Dr. George Hunsinger, talking about theories of atonement, he's like, first of all, he hates the idea of theories as if this was just <laughs> like different possible ideas that were proving or disproving or anything like that. But th- there are s- multiple simultaneous structures of atonement. Micah, you already pointed it out that even Anselm was was responding to a theology that had come up in response to another thing. A- and how many of these these systems of atonement are just our ways of trying to understand this unbelievable thing that happened that only makes sense in God's in God's rationale. And that's that's not me trying to punt to mystery too too early or, or too quickly. <laughs> but even the violence, the messiness of of the sacrificial lamb and the blood system, you know, there's not just the sacrificial scapegoat lamb, there's also the Passover lamb. This this kind of blood magic of of a protection. Jesus's blood as a a protective coating, a, a defense against I don't know, evil, uh, all sorts of things, that somehow all of these atonement systems and, and things work together and, and overlap and, and have, have peak moments where they're important to personally or important for a culture. And it's just, it gets really messy. To go back to Elle's point really quickly, I think that, that perfect love casts out fear, right? That, mm. that, that fear that we were talking about as, as the division, as the thing that keeps us apart from each other, the atonement is supposed to be at one right? Is how do we bring ourselves back together? How do we bring ourselves back into right relationship? And I don't think that God is willing for anyone to be left out of right relationship with God, mm-hmm. right? And I think that our purpose here in the world is to not let anyone be left out of right relationship, right? I say all the time, the reason I am opposed to the existence of billionaires is not that I'm opposed to the people who are billionaires. I'm opposed to the idea that there are some people who can't have loving relationships with anyone around them because they don't know if they're authentic relationships or if they're just someone who's seeking their money, right? Like, what an inhuman way to live, not knowing whether or not you are actually loved by anyone around you because you have so much money that you cannot be authentically loved, right? I am totally opposed to that. And I'm opposed because their humanity is affected by the fact that they're exploiting millions of other people, right? Yeah, but I was, was going to say. Yeah, I was like, they could, <laughs> but, they could just be friends with other billionaires. I guess they could maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I don't even think that, right? I think that there is, when you get yeah. to that sort of inhumanity, like, how can you have loving relationships with other people, right? Yeah. And even though I am seeking a uh, radically different kind of world, I'm seeking one because it will be better for all of us, not just those who don't have enough, right? But actually bringing at one bringing unity to all of us. 
And I think that that is going to require sacrifice because the billionaires are not willing to give those things up very easily. <laughs> and it's going to require sacrifice to get there. It's going to require the sacrifice of the billionaires to uh, giving up their clinging to death, giving up all of their riches in order to build that kind of world. It's going to require those of us who are on the bottom to sacrifice ourselves so that we can help build that world in various ways, right? But I think that the last thing that I really, I, I really want to talk about in this story is in verse 14 that Abraham named the place the Lord sees. And this Moriah uh, in the Hebrew is Hemariah or Hamaraah. And the Samaritan Pentateuch, uh, the Samaritans are a religion very related to Judaism, basically the people who were left behind during the Babylonian captivity, who stayed in Israel and Judah, um, probably in, in Israel proper, and who thought that the place of worship was Mount Gerizim rather than down in Jerusalem. They translate this, this passage as the land of vision, right? The, the place mm. where we are seen. And I think that here in this story, Abraham calls this the place that the Lord sees, just like Hagar calls God El Roy the one who sees, because God sees the suffering that Abraham was about to go through and interrupted it. That God saw the suffering that Hagar is going through and interrupts it. And that God is consistently coming back to see what's going on, to hear the cries of injustice, to see us as we are, not as how we see ourselves to be, not the illusion that Char was just talking about, but actually who we are, and that that helps build the world that God envisioned for us in the first place. You know, it's interesting, this text is so often translated, the Lord provides. Mm. And I was doing a little bit of research on that myself. And while you're right, the most directly it is, you know, it comes from ra'ah, the Hebrew word to see. Uh, and so that seeing is most explicitly what the text is saying. But like many Hebrew words, it has many meanings. And so I love the idea that God seeing is God providing and that mm. these things can't be separated from each other. Mm. You know, it, it's not just God looking from afar being like, all right, I see you now, now keep going. But it's, you know, <laughs> God saying, if I see you, that means I'm providing for you. Mm. And if I'm providing for you, that means that I'm seeing you, that these, these are not separate things. And so if you believe that I am there, as I have been walking with you this whole time, that means that day by day, I will provide your daily bread. And what does that mean for us seeing others too? You know, that, that as we are called to walk the path of Jesus, to embody the love of God, you know, First John says, who having the love of God in their heart sees their brother or sister or sibling in need, you know, having the world's possessions and does not care for them. This person does not have the love of God in their heart. Mm -hmm. it, it is the seeing of that person that leads yeah. to the providing, that, that is directly tied to that. And so, you know, what are we doing to close our eyes to all of the people, including ourselves in our own places of need, where we say awful things about ourselves, right? You know, it's not just others. You know, <laughs> it's, like, it's like you're saying rich and poor, you know, privileged, uh, oppressed. I don't believe in this world where the rich suddenly become the, the do-gooders and are like helping the poor because that still creates this, you know, class separation. We're now the providers, you're the receivers. It's like, no, yeah. we're, we're all in it together. And there are various kinds of sacrifices that God desires for all of us. And ultimately it leads to that sense that you're saying of being in right relationship with one another, being in right relationship with God. 
And, and to be clear, I don't think that the billionaires are going to give this up by charity. I think it's going to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think that if if a billionaire claims to be a Christian, they should be living off of a subsistence wage, right? And that's what the early church thought, and that's what we're going to talk about with Stephen Morrison. Just to keep pumping up that interview that we're having with Stephen Morrison on All Riches Are Injustice. Highly recommend reading that book. I but, can't wait to hear that. <laughs> when... I was in college. I was privileged enough to go on a study abroad to Brazil, and we it was just a short trip, but we had class discussion because we were supposed to be learning. <laughs> and in one of the class discussions, it, it was nine girls and one dude, and all of us girls were from America, and the guy, I believe he was from Peru, and all us girls were just talking about, oh, isn't it so sad to see all these street animals, these poor dogs with one leg, they're so sick and hurt. And, you know, that we were in for a shock because the guy was like, what is wrong with you? You're talking about these dogs, like poor dogs, poor dogs. Do you not see the people on the street? Do you not see them suffering? And that was one of the first times that like my lens to like what I can recognize suffering as like was shaken off because of course we saw the people suffering on the street. But what would it mean if we like took a look at them and recognized their suffering and then then what? Like that was at a point in my life where I couldn't even recognize my own suffering. So like mm. how how can I recognize the suffering of others if I don't recognize my myself suffering too? But that's that's one of the the things it it means to be Christian and to be right with God is to to see your fellow man suffering, and then feel that hurt and be motivated to do something for them. And as St. Gregory of Nyssa would say, that it's not just loving the poor, but recognizing that when we love the poor, we're loving Jesus. And so if we mm-hmm. actually want to encounter Jesus, that's where we need to go. Yeah. Which is, again, this this power upheaval, where it's not just like, again, oh, we're going to be the compassionate, kind people. But, oh, if we want to have any relationship with Jesus at all, we need to know where Jesus is mm-hmm. and encounter Jesus <laughs> from the posture of total humility. Yeah. That I, from my spiritual disconnection, I need you. I need you to know Jesus. Y'all, y'all have said some really, really great things. I'm... <laughs> I'm just left with two kind of burning questions. Uh, The first is I really feel that there's something going on with these verses where it says he laid the wood on Isaac and then he laid Isaac on the wood and there's a reversal. (laughs) And I want to dig into that. I think there's a sermon there somewhere. Um, specifically, Specifically with that idea of Isaac's own voice and Isaac's own participation mm-hmm. and how and maybe how we we we've been handed a terrible world because of some of the choices of the powerful people in our lives and and that's not you know that's not to play a victim card necessarily but to say therefore what must we do what is our response to being born into the families that we're in to being born into this world that is on fire literally to being in this capitalistic system like how how do we reverse or accept graciously in the way that Jesus accepts graciously and that's his mode of subversion like how how do we how do we pull off this reversal that Jesus seems to do with with grace cuz again one of the reasons why i can't vibe entirely with uh communism necessarily is 
is because I, I, I love Marx and I love his diagnosis of the symptoms. Uh, I don't like his prescription of, of violence, but, you know, that's that's my middle class privilege speaking. <laughs> you know, the definition of the middle class is, is they who do not want to die a violent death. And that's, I guess that's me. Uh, my other my other question, I, I have even fewer musings on, uh, and that is just this reflection on uh, the sacrifice of the child's story here in Genesis 22, compared to the sacrifice of the child's story that we see in Judges 11 with uh, Jephthah's daughter, who, you know, this this supposedly God gives this commander victory, and he says, whoever, or like whatever, comes out of my front door when I come home, I will sacrifice as an offering to God. And I don't know what he was expecting to come out of his front door, but it was his daughter and he goes through with it. And this is like held up as a story of a sacrifice of, of a sacrifice gone wrong. Like God counter to what happened in Genesis 22, God did not ask. And yet God did not intervene in this child sacrifice and this girl dies. And, and what is that about? That's kind of my lingering question, but I, I just want to. I just want to keep us uncomfy. That's my job here. <laughs> I mean, I think. I think that goes back to one. God didn't ask for that, and God doesn't interfere with humans' free will. He just doesn't, even if it means the death of people a lot. Um, you know, like he could have intervened with Cain and Abel. He knew what was going on, but he didn't because he respects our free will to. To that kind of fault, but they don't want to be that controlling, authoritarian God, I don't think. Yeah, I think there's, there's certainly a, a sermon in Isaac carrying the means of his own destruction, right? And I think that that is, you know, on, on the one hand, we can see that as death, right? The power of sin and death as oftentimes we are carrying the means of our own destruction. When we, again, when we hoard our wealth, when we enact violence against others, when we do all these sorts of things, we are carrying the means of our own destruction. We're celebrating in the means of our own destruction, right? But I also think that there is the other side of this, where Isaac is being faithful and being faithful knowing that it will cost him his life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again, I, I want to emphasize that Dietrich Bonhoeffer's greatest regret was that he had not acted against Hitler sooner, where he thought that his that his particular mode of life was sufficient, and so he didn't do all that he could to resist the evil in his life. But when he realized it, he took up the means of his own destruction, right, in order to stop this evil going on. And I think that, that hosting this podcast and being openly anarchist um, and those sorts of things is planting the seed of my own destruction, right? <laughs> is planting me to be targeted uh, by a government who doesn't want me to be talking about these things, by um, social structures that don't want us to talk about a different way of existing. But I also feel called to it. I also feel like this is what is being asked of me and that it is ultimately something that is going to build a better world than the one that we have now. And I am saying this podcast is an example to not talk about the other ways that many of our comrades are doing things that will lead to their own destruction, but that are necessary if we want to build the kind of world that we need. I think it's important that we think about applications to the ways that this text speaks to us today. And as I read this text, and more importantly, as I hear you read this text, because again, this comes from an oral tradition, what I'm reflecting on is that Abraham and Isaac would have 
gone on and who knows what the journey would have been if they had not gone up this mountain. That wouldn't have changed necessarily, but the profound message and transformation of Abraham and the scripture message that has been so powerful uh, in the Jewish and in the uh, Christian traditions for so long, we wouldn't have that if not for Abraham's faithfulness. And so I think about how God has already provided the lamb, you know, how there is this nothing that we can do to restore our relationship with God. This is not a works-based faith. And yet God is calling all of us up that mountain. God is calling us to participate in the work of God. And with that comes the premise of sacrifice, immense sacrifice. You know, this whole idea, like you must lose your life to find it. You have to deny yourself and, you know, take up your cross to follow me. I think when Jesus in Luke 14, 33 said to the massive crowds, if you want to be my disciple, you have to sell all your possessions. I, I think that was a universal claim. That's me, my personally, it's one of my strongest, you know, emboldened theological <laughs> takes, you know, and, and, and so I think with all this is like the sacrifice is so much larger than we can imagine, but it will never lead to the death of our son. It'll never lead to the death of what is actually life. What God Mm. is calling us to give up is what we think is good. I think what Abraham ultimately sacrificed was not his son, but his own distrust in God. Mm. And so we are called to go up to them, up the mountain to lose our lives by all extents that we have understood our lives to be because we're not living in life right now. We're living in death. God is calling us to life and we have to die to death in order to be alive in life. And that's what this story speaks to me is that the immense sacrifice that none of us out of our own worldly perspectives would ever desire, would never want. It doesn't sound good to us now. But on the other side of that salvation, of walking the way, being in the light, we'll look back and be like, that was death. How could I possibly have wanted that? You know. And so I think that the call for all of us who consider ourselves Christians and more specifically followers of Jesus. You know, the call is a call of sacrifice of what we consider to be good now, trusting that God will provide, that God sees us and God's, God knows what is truly good. And I think that goes back to the, the point I was at least trying to make earlier, that ultimately we are asked to sacrifice death and in exchange we are given life. We are asked to give up capitalism, the system of sin and death, and exchange form community of love and mutualistic uh, relationship that is the basis of socialism. That socialism is a system based on social relationships rather than capitalism being based on a system of capitalistic relationships, right? We're being asked to give up oppression for freedom. We're being asked to give up capitalism for socialism. We're being asked to give up hate for love. We're being asked to give up all of these things that ultimately are not actually what we are meant to be in God so that we can be what God has asked us to be. I, I absolutely love that point. <laughs> and I think that that is a great place uh, for us to end what is almost certainly going to be a two-parter. Thank you, El, Char, and Byron for this wonderful conversation. And friends, please go and check out Char and Byron's podcast and all of uh, the episodes that they have. And y'all can check out uh, I think it's the third part of this episode. We're going to be releasing uh, their conversation on kink theology on our feed as well, so that you can listen to that. Please go and subscribe and listen and do all the things uh, for them. Thank you all so much for being a part of this conversation. It was absolutely wonderful. I hope that we're able to do it again soon. Take it away, Pastor Micah. Thank you, Future Micah. And of course, you, our wonderful listener. Together, we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, 
you can reach me through the Discord or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. And now go, friends, and offer up a sacrifice of death so that we may truly live. Shalom. Shalom.